The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Good. Well, let's go on, and I think in a timely way, to, to look at assurance of salvation. Because, you know, he's like, oh, please, how do I know if I'm a Christian, you know? It's like, wow, I've got all this sin in my life, you know? And uh, that's where the sweetness, uh, I don't think there's any group that has done as good work on assurance of salvation as the Puritans. I mean, they just excellent, excellent, careful thinkers in assurance. And there's no book, I think, that does as good a job as uh, this one, Heaven on Earth. Heaven on Earth. Okay, so look at the outline I've given you. Uh, Thomas Brooks um, says, Assurance is a believer's ark where he sits Noah-like, quiet and still in the midst of all distractions and destructions, commotions and confusions. Isn't that beautiful? Assurance is your ark, right? And you can sit there in the midst of a storm-tossed life and world, peaceful. Now, I talked to Jeremy today, my secretary, and he said, do you really think Noah was sitting placid and peaceful on that ark? I said, well, I don't know, but it's an image anyway. I mean, I certainly would rather be on the ark than out of the ark, all right? I mean, so it's much more peaceful in the ark than it was out of the ark. So anyway, it's a good image. And in the preface, uh, he tells us the nature of assurance. Now, the first thing he does, what Brooks does, is he talks about the nature of the state of grace. What that means is being a Christian. That's a Puritan way of saying being born again, being a Christian, being in the state of grace. Or Luther would put it, being justified by faith apart from works of the law. To, to have this justification, to be regenerate, a child of God, that's what we mean. Now, to be in a state of grace is to be miserable no more. It is to be happy forever. A soul in this state is a soul near and dear to God. It is a soul much loved and very highly valued of God. And it is a soul housed in God. It is a soul safe in the everlasting arms. Isn't that sweet? To just be safe in God. To be safe in the everlasting arms. That's the state of grace. But what he says, that one of the foundational ideas here, is that assurance is actually, in one sense, separate from that. It's a separate thing. It's connected, definitely, but it's separate. The additional blessing of knowing that you're in a state of grace. That's what we call assurance. Okay? The being in the state of grace will yield a man heaven hereafter. But the seeing of himself in this state will yield him both a heaven here and a heaven hereafter. And that's why it's called heaven on earth. Heaven on earth is assurance. To know that you're going to heaven when you die. That's assurance. It will render, render him doubly blessed, blessed in heaven and blessed in his own conscience. And so he gives us a definition of assurance. Assurance is a reflex act of a gracious soul whereby he clearly and evidently sees himself in a gracious, blessed, and happy state. It is a sensible feeling and an experimental discerning of man's being in a state of grace. In other words, you feel and know of yourself, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm a child of God. To feel and to know that, that's what we're talking about when you talk, to, talk about assurance. And of his having a right to the crown of glory. And this rises from the seeing of himself 
sorry, the seeing in himself the special, peculiar, and distinguishing graces of Christ in the light of the Spirit of Christ or from the testimony and report of the Spirit of God. And one of the great things that I think a pastor can do, a careful thinking pastor, is to describe what these graces are. What are the marks of regeneration in a soul? What does God do when he saves somebody? What can we look at inside ourselves to say, I know that he has saved me because I see these things in my life. What are these graces? We're going to talk about this in Brooks. Uh, he gives us a good list of these marks of regeneration. We're talking to Scott uh, Markley when we we're talking about, you know, we go out with these tracks and all that, but it seems like one of, one of the tracks we need to write is what are the marks of regeneration? Because we go out there and everybody's a Christian. Everybody. Everybody you meet. And even when you start talking about you know, the peculiar peculiarities and particularities of the gospel, you know, trusting in Christ and repenting and, you know, oh yeah, I've done that. I did that. I do it all the time or whatever. I don't know. They, you know, they, they just have these ways of talking. It's like, you know, they're not saved, but you can't get at it, you know? And so one of the things that the Puritans did so well is say, what does God do in a soul when he saves them? What are these marks? Well, assurance is to know what they are and to see them in yourself. To see those marks in yourself, that's assurance. And it's something the Spirit of God does. So therefore, we're really talking about two different things, but very much related. Justification and assurance. Do you see that? The distinction between the two. To be justified means that God has declared you not guilty of all your sins. That you are totally forgiven. You're seen in Christ. You're seen as righteous as Christ. You can't have a better standing before God than you do. Can't. That's justification, right? Assurance means you know that. You know it. It's true of you. You see the difference there, the distinction. Okay. And so it says, it is one thing for me to have grace. It is another thing for me to see my grace. It is one thing for me to believe and another thing for me, for me to believe that I do believe. It is one thing to have faith and another thing to know that I have faith. Assurance flows from a clear, certain, evident knowledge that I have grace. Okay? Now, what are the blessednesses of assurance? Well, many. It's a rich state to be in. Assurance is the beauty and top of a Christian's glory in this life. It is usually surrounded with the strongest joy, with the sweetest comforts, and with the greatest peace. It is a pearl that most want. Want, I think, there means lack. Puritans use the word that way. It is a, it is a pearl that most lack, a crown that few wear. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, but it's not a common thing. Assurance is not the essence of a Christian. It is required to the well-being, to the comfortable and enjoyable being of a Christian, but it's not required to the being of the Christian. A man may be a true believer and yet would give all the world were it in his power to know that he's a believer. Now, I have heard speakers say something like the following. 99% sure is 100% lost. A speaker who's spoken in our pulpit recently has said that kind of thing. Is it true? If you're not 100% sure, you're 100% lost? Well, what would Brooks say, at least? I don't know what you would say, but what would Brooks say? We've already seen one page of what he would say. He would say that's utterly false. You can definitely be justified and, and be going through circumstances in your life, you know, probably through your own sin or whatever, but just various things where your assurance is pretty low. You see what I'm saying? And I think, therefore, assurance very much waxes and wanes. 
Assurance very much comes and goes. Assurance is very much like the stock market. Whereas your justification, your position with God is nothing like that at all. Can't be. You see that, don't you? You're either justified or you're not. But your assurance really does wax and wane. It really does get stronger and weaker. Yeah, Peter would too, and that's a good thing. Okay, That's a good thing. I think Second Peter 1 is exactly about assurance. It says, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Well, what is that? Work on assurance. That's what we're doing with heaven on earth. We're working on assurance. So he says, be diligent, be hasty, be zealous, work hard that your calling and election would be sure. And so therefore, justification absolutely is not by works, but assurance is very much connected to works. Do you see that? Your assurance is going to go down if you start sinning. And if you keep sinning, your assurance will keep going down and may even accelerate down. And if you continue even more to harden your heart, your assurance may bottom out and you may not even know that you're a Christian at all. And yet you are. And then you'll start to bounce and you'll start to say, what am I doing? Like the prodigal son, you'll come to yourself, you'll say, what kind of life am I living? You'll weep bitter like Peter did that night and you'll come back and you'll start to repent if you're truly born again, right? So what I'm saying is that this assurance, it does come and go. There was a, yeah, question. Yes, it is a form of unbelief. It is. It is a form of unbelief. It is. You know, and he's going to talk about that. But we are, to some degree, unbelievers, aren't we? Do you believe everything that you should about God? Is your faith as strong? Jesus says you have faith like a mustard seed. You can throw this mountain into the ocean. I mean, my goodness. That, to me, you look at the things that people like George Mueller did by faith, and I, and I wonder if I even have faith when I look at that. He's actually going to, Brooks is going to talk about just the depression that comes when you look either at the commands of God and the kind of lifestyle that we should have, or just the performance of other very mature Christians. And we say, oh, I'm nothing like them. I must not be a Christian. And so we'll talk about that. But um, yeah, it's connected to, in some way to unbelief. Okay. So this is the just the preface. <laughs> we're not getting through all this tonight, but that's all right. I knew we were going to do more of heaven and earth next, next week. Let's start with proofs that assurance is even possible. Let's start there, okay? Now, I come from the Roman Catholic Church, my Roman Catholic background, okay? Now, in the Council of Trent, which is their official response to the Protestant Reformation, they utterly, unequivocally denied that assurance of salvation was possible. As a matter of fact, if anyone said they had assurance of salvation, let them be accursed. That's what they said. And the reason they said that is that they were semi-Pelagian. And Pelagians basically say that man is essentially free, essentially born good, learns how to do evil in his life, and at any moment has freedom to say yes or no to sin. Arminianism is a semi-Pelagian position. We're going to talk later about how assurance absolutely cannot relate to Arminianism. They will not encourage you to have assurance of salvation. They'll tell you not only is it impossible, but it's not even desirable that you should have assurance of salvation. You need to keep cranking it out, brothers and sisters. Okay? And they think that if you have assurance, you're going to use it for sin. And so they'll keep it away. And just like the... You know, like the dog races where that rabbit runs around, you know, it's like just keep you running because, you know, if we ever, you know, you ever get the rabbit, the race is over. I mean, then they'll realize I'll never run again because it wasn't worth getting. But anyway, um, but the, the rabbit's always just ahead of the dogs, you know, and so that's the Arminian kind of view is like got to keep them running because, and, and that's the whole thing. Assurance is not only not possible, it's not desirable. The Roman Catholic uh, uh, version or, or view has that same approach. So what we have to do is say, okay, we're talking about assurance of salvation. Is it even something we should have? 
Is it biblical to know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die? Is this biblical? Yes, it is. <laughs> it is, absolutely. Well, let's look at it. It gives us ten assurance. See, the Puritans never did in two steps what they could do in ten. All right, so, I mean, it's much better. And if you, can't, if you can do it in twenty, that's even better. All right, so he gives us ten ways that we can know. First, Romans 8, the basis of assurance, Romans 8, 32-34. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And we could go on. The end of Romans 8. Let me ask you a question. What is Paul, through the Spirit, laboring to do to you there? What does he want you to have? He wants you to have assurance. Could it even be denied? You read Romans 8 and say, this has got to be the assurance chapter. And it is. I mean, nothing in all creation, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You think, my question there is, what is Paul trying to do? And that will give you the clear idea that God's giving you assurance. And that's exactly where Brooks starts in Romans 8. It is clear that Paul intends his words of assurance to be generally for all Christians and not just for a special class of Christians, not just for super-Christians. This is for us all, for all of us. And so assurance is uh, definitely possible because that's what Paul's seeking to give us in Romans 8. Generally in, 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 in all, the purpose of Scripture is to help believers obtain assurance. Not just Romans 8, but all Scripture tends toward this direction. All of it. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you see that? Okay. Now, I think the testing assurance book is First John. How do we know? This is how we know what love is, or this is how we know and can assure our hearts in his presence if we have love for the brothers or if we obey his commandments or there's a certain series of things he does for us in 1 John so that we can assure ourselves. But the summation of it all, 1 John 5.13, I've written this whole letter, not just verse 11 and 12 like Campus Crusades track gives the indication. It's really the whole letter. I've written all of 1 John to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's his purpose. And I could expand that over the whole 66 books of the Bible. That is, that is what the Bible is given to us for, ultimately. Brooks put it this way, it is the very drift and design of the whole Scripture to bring souls first to an acquaintance with Christ, then to an acceptance of Christ, and then to build them up to a sweet assurance of their actual interest in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Scripture's here for. First, we find out who Christ is. Then we accept him as our Savior, and then we're fully assured that we have an interest in him. Interest means like we bought stock in the company. That's the way the Puritans use that. To have an interest in Christ means you're, you're in. You're like a, you know, whatever share owner of Motorola or whatever. You know what I'm saying? You bought stock in the company. You're in. You're a child of God. So that's what it means. So the Scripture's given uh, for that. Martin Luther, in typical incautious statement, but I like it anyway. Um, I would not live in paradise without the word, but with the word I could live in hell itself. Like I said, typically incautious, but we get the point, all right? The point is that the word gives us everything we need. That's what he's getting at there. All right, Brooks says in Scripture, God has given us his word, his oath, his seal, that our consolation may be strong and that our salvation may be sure. Now, here is the nature of the agony that we have if we don't have assurance. 
Listen to this, and this is very insightful, I think, on Brooks' part. It is not enough to raise strong consolation in my soul barely to know that there are mines of gold, mountains of pearl, heaps of treasure, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's not enough to know that such exists. You can see why. Well, what good is that going to do me if I don't have some of it, right? It's not enough to just know that it's out there. But I have to know it is the knowledge of my interest, that is ownership in these things, that raises joy in my soul. To know that there are such things and that I have no interest in them is rather a vexation than a consolation to me. To know that there is a feast of choicest delicacies, but not a taste for me. To uh, That there are pleasant fountains and streams, but I must perish for thirst in a wilderness. To know that there are royal robes for others, but I must die in my rags. To know that there is a pardon for others, but I must be turned off the ladder of life. Such knowledge as this may well add to my vexation, but it will not add to my consolation. Isn't that true? What good is it to know that there is a feast at the wedding banquet of the Lamb if you don't know that you have a, a place card and a seat at it? I think it actually would be a torment. And frankly, I think that even if there were no hell, if you were sustained an existence on the outside of the celebration of heaven, it would be tormenting enough almost. You know? I mean, this makes sense. Have you ever seen, for example like pictures in 1975 of the people who are trying to escape from uh, Saigon and they're holding on to the last leg of the, of the uh, helicopter as the last helicopter goes off. It's not enough to know that there's a beautiful country in America where there isn't a civil war going on and where you could actually set up and, and maybe prosper and have a good life for your family. You need to know, am I on that helicopter? Because it just would torment me to know that I could have been and missed it. Can you imagine what it would be like, if, even if there were no hell at all, to miss heaven? to be on the outside, to hear the joy, the celebration, and never see any of it, to never taste any of it, to be on the outside. I think you can turn the whole thing around and say, even if there were no heaven, to hear the screams of torment and know that I wasn't there is joy and bliss enough. And so every person in heaven has a double blessing. They missed hell as well. And every person in hell has a double curse. They missed heaven as well. Isn't that terrible? When you stop and think about it, the people in hell, not only are they suffering torment, but they don't get heaven either. And so for me, I think assurance must be, am I included? Is there some for me? Do I get some? And the question that you have to ask is, how can I know personally that I have a share in the kingdom? Not just, don't tell me how great the kingdom is and how wonderful and there's full forgiveness and that we can sit on Christ's throne and all that. Do I know? If, how do I know that I'm included in that? Isn't that the issue of assurance? And that's what Brooks is getting at. Now, third proof. First is that Romans 8 gives us this uh, purpose of all scriptures to help believers obtain assurance. Thirdly, many believers have obtained assurance and they write about it in scripture. For example, Job. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh... I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. Isn't that the point? I will be there. How my heart yearns within me. That is a great statement of assurance, right? He says, I know even though I'm going through a really tough time right now in my life, in the end, I will see God in a resurrection body, no less. Old Testament believer. Here's a guy that just knew God. 
And he knew that death could not be God's final word on the human body. And so he believed in a physical resurrection. And so even though worms are eating my body, in my flesh I will see God. That's assurance, isn't it? Or how about Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.1? Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. That's, those are words of assurance. I'm going to have a house. Now, he's talking about a resurrection body there. But he's saying, my body's getting destroyed. Outwardly, I'm, I'm perishing, but I'm going to get something later on. We know it, he says. 2 Corinthians 5.1, we know. Or in 2 Timothy 4.8, you know, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul, Paul's got assurance of salvation there, doesn't he? He knows he's going to get something. He's going to get this reward. Or Asaph, for example, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know? He says, he says when I die, I'm going to see God. He's my portion in heaven. I'm going to have him. Or David, Psalm 1611, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's assurance language, isn't it? And there's many other examples. Fourthly, God has promised assurance to his people. Brooks gives us uh, Psalm 8411, right? The Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Is assurance a good thing? Yeah, it is. And I really have a hard time knowing how you can live a good Christian life without it. If you're really not sure whether you're going to hell or not, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you could call that a good life. But he says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Assurance of salvation must be one of those good things. And it is. Uh, Ezekiel 34, many other verses like this, then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are people, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. And then John 14:21, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's assurance, isn't it? To have the, the indwelling Father, Son, and Spirit, because he also says of the Counselor that he will be in you. The world cannot receive him, but the Spirit will be in you. And so we have Father, Son, and Spirit within us, making their home with us and showing themselves to us. That's assurance. It's clearly promised in John 14 and other places too. And the beautiful thing is God keeps his promises. So he has promised assurance and he will do it. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, All of God's promises, they are yea and amen. Now, the springs of assurance, fifthly, the springs of assurance are in the saints. What you need for assurance is in you if you're a child of God already. You know, later on, he's, I'll give it to you right from the start here, you get the image of Hagar, remember, who's fleeing out in the desert, remember? And she thinks she's going to uh, starve and, and uh, die of of lack of water in the desert. And she's sitting right near a spring. You remember? Genesis 21. And, that, and Brooks says that's the way many Christians are in assurance. Everything they need is within them. John chapter 4, Jesus said, uh, springs of water will well up within you. 
You know, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, but the water that I give him will become with him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so you have within you the springs of assurance already. Faith is a spring out of which flows a river of assurance. And Brooks, uh, very insightful here, faith is an appropriating grace. It looks upon God and says with David, this, is God, this God is my God forever and ever and shall be my guide unto death, Psalm 48, 14. It looks, this is speaking of faith now, it looks upon Christ and says with the spouse, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. It looks upon an immortal crown and says with Paul, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of glory. Faith looks upon the righteousness of Christ and says, this righteousness is mine to cover me. Faith looks upon the mercy of Christ and says, this mercy is mine to pardon me. Faith looks upon the power of Christ and says, this power is mine to support me. Faith looks upon the wisdom of Christ and says, this wisdom is mine to direct me. Faith looks upon the blood of Christ and says, this blood is mine to save me. That's what faith does. Faith appropriates. It's passive. It receives what God has to give. And so therefore, if you are a believer, you have faith by definition. And therefore, you have already the spring of assurance. Justification is connected to assurance. They're not the same, but they're related. And so we go, uh, you know, and I think most new believers have an immediate assurance, you know, because they, that's what happens when you're justified. I'm talking about as the journey goes on, your assurance can sadly bottom out. So also a good conscience is a spring of assurance. 1 John 3.21, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Isn't that an important verse? What do you mean if what does that mean if our hearts do not condemn us we have confidence before God. And so how do we do that by defiling our consciences? And there's only one thing I know that defiles my conscience and that's my own sin. Nobody else's sin can defile my conscience. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? I I mean somebody else no matter how close they are to me cannot defile my own conscience. I'm the only one who can do that. The devil can't defile my conscience. Okay, but I can. And when my conscience is defiled, what happens to my confidence before God? It goes down the tubes. Not all the way, but if I continue and harden my heart, it'll go lower and lower. It'll keep going. And so basically the, the deal is, you know, and, and Brooks puts it very well here, a good conscience and good confidence go together. It says very plainly in Hebrews 10, uh, I think it's verse 36, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. How do we throw away our confidence before God? It's that nasty three-letter word again, sin. It's the only way you can throw away your confidence. He says, don't throw it away. Stand firm. Don't sin. Your confidence will be richly rewarded. Good things come from a solid assurance, right? And so, um, a love for saints is another spring of assurance. First uh, John, that should be First John 3.14. Sorry, it's a typo there. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Okay? And then, as our brother mentioned earlier, the Spirit of God actually commands you to be assured, commands you toward assurance. Where? 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Spudadso is the Greek word. It means uh, use all possible haste and speed. Right? Be very diligent and serious in this matter of assurance. Do everything you can to make your calling and your election sure. Right? So that if you're commanded to do something, then I would think we should have it. Right? So the Catholics and the Arminians are wrong. If God's commanding us that we should make our calling election sure, then surely assurance is one of the good things God has for us. And it's possible to attain. 
Okay, so the focus of the command is be sure that you're called, be sure that you're elect. Now, the command implies that assurance takes great effort. You say, now wait, I thought we weren't saved by, we weren't saved by works. No, I said you weren't justified by works. Salvation's bigger than justification. Did you realize that? You actually have to work in your Christian life. How many of you knew that you had to work in your Christian life? All of you do. Because you were justified years ago and it's been hard work ever since, right? Is it hard work to get up and have your quiet time? Is it hard work to put a besetting sin to death? Is it hard work to memorize scripture? Is it hard work to fast on a fasting and prayer day? Yes. Is it hard work to listen to me? Yes, it is. Absolutely. But it's of some benefit and so you do it. Um, these things are hard work. But they come with it comes benefit. And he's saying, do the work. Because as you do the work in your Christian life, your assurance is going to go up and up and up. It's going to get stronger and stronger. All right, we are, my goodness, out of time. Okay, I, if, with your permission, I'm going to go quickly through the final, final ways that we know, and you can read the details. The Lord has given us means whereby we can obtain assurance. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8 gives us these. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, the commands to self-examination are a means to the end of assurance. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Did you do that on Sunday? If you were here for the Lord's Supper, I hope so. That's an important time. And I'm not, I'm not acting as a pastor there. I'm a man before God getting myself ready to take the Lord's Supper, lest I eat and drink judgment on myself. You see? And so you have to be very serious in that. So examine yourself, and even more to the point, I think, 2 Corinthians 13.5, it says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? So you're supposed to test yourself to see whether you're a Christian or not. So that implies that assurance is one of those things that is given to us. And then the Lord's Supper is related to assurance. One of the main purposes of the Lord's Supper is the ongoing assurance of, of saints, right? That's why he gave it. We're not going to be eating the Lord's Supper in the kingdom. We're going to be having the wedding banquet of the Lamb. But assurance comes from the Lord's Supper. We look back to the death of Christ. We look around to the body of Christ and we're part of it. We look ahead to the second coming of Christ. These are assurance things. And then uh, also the relation of assurance to rejoicing in the Lord. I'm going to stop on this one. Um, Many scriptures portray or command Christians to be lavishly rejoicing in their salvation. Listen to Matthew 5.12. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How can you do that if you don't have assurance of salvation? If you don't even know whether you're going to go to your reward, right? You get persecuted on earth, but you'll never get it because you're going to spend eternity in hell. How could you possibly obey this command? Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. If you never get there, how can you rejoice here on earth? It doesn't make any sense to teach that there's no assurance of salvation. How could you obey this command if there's no assurance? Rejoice and be glad because when you get to heaven, you're going to get a big reward. Well, how do you know? I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to get there. Well, then how can I rejoice? I can't. It doesn't make any sense. Or this one, even more pointedly, Luke 10.20. However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
Don't celebrate that the demons run out when you say, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. Hey, that's big and showy, but what really matters is your names are written in heaven. Rejoice about that. You see the point? If assurance of salvation is not permissible, if assurance of salvation is not allowable, uh, you know, as, as the Armenians and Roman Catholics tell us, then how could, how could this verse be here? Rejoice that your names are now, today, written in heaven and will never be erased. Huh. Romans 5, 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How can you do that if you have no assurance? Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 1 Peter 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. How can you do that if you have no assurance? Well, we can have assurance. We can. We must have assurance. It's a gift from God. 1 Thessalonians 5, be joyful always. And so, this is great evidence and proof that there must be assurance of salvation. The last one is just that God makes distinctions between the righteous and the unrighteous. Throughout the Bible, the good and the, the wheat and the chaff, if you can't tell the difference between whether you're one or the other, then those verses don't make much sense, do they? So assurance of salvation must be possible. Now next time I'm going to talk about why K is true, namely why assurance is not, cannot be for Arminians. What are Arminians? People who focus on human decision, on free will. You came to Christ of your own free will. Of your own free will, you stay in Christ. Therefore, I want to ask you, how do you know your free will is going to be working well 10 years from now? Is that an engine that's going to take you to heaven? How's your will doing? Is it doing well? Is it one of your friends? Or is your will somewhat like a rebellious horse that needs training all the time? The fact of the matter is we're kept by God's grace. Assurance is not for Arminians. Assurance is for those who understand the grace of God as it's given to us in Christ. All right, let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.